Hey y'all, this is Unbound Love. The meandering conversation of two pastors. I am Gail. And I am Kelly. And today we are going to talk about uh, the Bible. We're going to talk about specifically inerrancy, the the concept of inerrancy, um, which is a belief that there are no errors in the Bible, um, that it was written um, as God would have it written, like God gave these words um, to humans, and that they wrote it down exactly as God told them, and it is perfect just as it's written, and there is no variation from this idea or word that is written. Um, it is um, perfect. And so, what say ye? I say, whoa. <laughs> um, this has always been fascinating to me, just from a mental gymnastics standpoint. Mm. Um, for, I mean, first of all, it's such a new thing. Mm. It really is a new found concept. You know, I'm like, I, the idea that they took the idea that God breathed the inspiration, the spirit of which the Bible was written in that we have been handing down the idea that um that people were inspired by god to write these words into that god actually moved the pen fascinates me i under i don't understand how someone's mind can after reading every version of the bible that we have and understanding the ancient text and how they were put together i I, it always it doesn't astound me that the people in the pews who are told this believe this i completely understand where you're coming from i i want to believe what my pastors and my leaders tell me i understand that i don't understand how people who have been schooled in the bible perpetuate this idea because the idea that 25,000 different translations can all be exactly what God wanted them to say or that one is more important than the other just blows my mind. I Methodists believe in and inspired by most denominations and even for our texts that we borrowed from our Jewish siblings, our, our Jewish siblings do not believe that God actually wrote the Bible herself um they believe that that it was inspired it was people's stories so i i am blown away and i i don't i don't understand it so i grew up in a tradition um where inerrancy was the standard um so i was taught as a child that this is the inspired word of god this is a a book that is without error and you know God said it, I believe it, and that's it. Um, And so that is not um, at all strange to me um, because I was brought up in that. I was steeped in it. And um, so in some ways, uh, for me, um, and I, uh, like I said, I grew up in in that, and I I grew up in a very religious, um, high-religiosity family. And... um, And so when I went away to college um, and I went to a church-affiliated school um, in a conservative denomination, but I get to college and, you know, the first semester, you take Old Testament. Everyone takes Old Testament. It's just what you do. And I sat down in Old Testament and uh, for the first time, um, you start, you start in the Bible. Where do you start? You start in Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. And so here we are, the beginning of Genesis, there are two stories of creation. 
<laughs> and I'm in the WT fuck, you know, because yeah. what in the world are you talking about? There's one story of creation. God created the world in seven days and this is it. And had never considered that there were two stories. To me, it was just the same story retold or a different portion of the story. And like, it just never even occurred to me that this was two separate stories that gave two separate ideas of how this came about and so you know right off the bat i'm in um, a little bit of a spiritual crisis because i don't know what to think anymore um and i think that that kind of spiritual crisis happens a lot in um, a lot of our lives where what we've been taught all of a sudden isn't what we're hearing or what we've come to believe um, or we're being challenged on that. And like a lot of people who grew up in a very conservative, um, fundamentalist place, challenging the idea and questioning the idea was considered a lack of faith. Um, and so this whole concept of, of inerrancy um, can be very difficult, I think, and can cause a lot of spiritual crisis for people. When they come to the idea that it might not be exactly the words of God handed to persons. It, I think it it can cause a crisis of faith for some people. I think um, as we walk through this path that we're walking, and I spend a lot of time working with people who are deconstructing. I spend a lot of time introducing people to the idea of the inspired versus the inerrant word of God and what that means. I find that a lot of the atheists that come my way are still holding on. I find that a lot of the people who grew up in that movement cannot let go of the fact that the Bible has to be the direct, exact, word-for-word history and word of God. Mm -hmm. They can't let go of the flood. They can't let go of Adam and Eve. And and they'd rather let go of faith, Mm -hmm. let go of their spirituality, let go of their connection to the scripture, Mm -hmm. than start to bend their mind around something else. And that I understand, too, because Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of mental gymnastics for us to to understand scripture, because it comes from a ton of different people over a long time span. And it's been handed down verbally, and then some people wrote it down, and then some people translated that and wrote it down again. And we have, like, the telephone version of our scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so trying to pull all of the ideas around, take take, take this whole method of reading the Bible that is more difficult than just saying, oh, it's the Word of God, believe it, do it. And I find, as you said, when you actually start, reading the words in the Bible, not a Bible study, not something that someone leads you, but reading the words of the Bible, it is almost impossible to believe in inerrancy. Mm -hmm. If you read the whole entire thing, I know people are going to say I did. Truly, I think it's impossible because you have so many conflicting stories, so many things that happen at the same time, so many things that are so confusing that it causes you to have a crisis of faith. And I I get frustrated by those who still hold and cling to that as the reason that they don't want to continue their Christian walk. And that makes me a little sad. But I've never, I was never in a place. I don't understand that truly because I never was in a place. I was taught from the very beginning 
the ancient languages and how hard it is to translate and the world of the Bible was opened up differently to me. Um, but it almost makes me sad because I remember sitting in college in that class and watching half the people leave and not be able to take the class. And I watched the girl beside me start crying mm. because she thought the university was going to take God away from her. Mm. And she was so scared just listening to someone say that. And that broke my heart. And sometimes I feel like people who have had that space are better at helping people deconstruct than people like me who just have not ever experienced that authoritative, this is the word and you can't think anything else. Mm. I think we need more people who have walked through that to help share their walk because I think it is damaging to our faith and I don't know how to fix it. So I'll say that, that fairly early on, um, what, you know, as I start to question things, um, I, um, uh, would, would find my way around, you know, so <clears throat> we all like to do that. We all like to, um, do some justification. Um, so I believe in the inerrant word of God and yet I will fully acknowledge that, um, the translation that I am reading is indeed a translation that some human person took these words from the original text and they created this document that I am reading. And so, um, I, I can't read the original text and in, a, in most cases we don't have an original text. So we have older texts. We have texts that maybe even are in the original language, but even those are believed to not be the original. So there are no originals here. So we can't take the, oh, this is the one that was written down by the actual author and say, this is 100% what they wrote down at this point in time. And so you start to worm your way through with, okay, so some scribe was writing it down and they put some personal note off to the side and then the next person who comes and then they kind of incorporate that into this text and, and it gets handed down with this part added in and then somebody else adds something in. And pretty soon, like you said, it's like the game of telephone. You have this document that isn't the original because we don't have the original. And I do think that that's a justification. I think that it's not a, a, a far-fetched idea that that is indeed what happened. But it's also a justification that is a step in that deconstruction, in a step in that change. And I will tell you flat out, like, I love the story of the flood. And whether or not it's true doesn't really matter to me. Um, I've come to not care. Um, however, I love the story. Um, more, I love the story of Jonah and the whale. And so I will suspend all belief in order to believe that there was a whale who swallowed that dude and spit him up on the beach. And whether or not it's true is completely irrelevant to me. Um, I just, I want to believe it and that's fine. Um, so there's my spirit animal. And so, so I think that, that making a conscious choice to say, okay, so I, I don't necessarily believe that it's true and yet I'm going to suspend my reality in order to hold on to this isn't always a bad idea. I, I think it comes down to what part of the story is important to you. Mm. If the part of the story is important to you that 
Adam and Eve were a man and a woman that were first created, then, then that's your focus. Then you're missing the beauty of the story. Mm-hmm. I believe in the creation stories that we were handed down and what the point that they tell us, the idea of the separation from God, the idea of our desire to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil pulled us from God. I love that whole thing. I believe in the, the backbone of the story, mm-hmm. but not the details. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's where the inerrancy inspired controversy happens when people focus so much on the details and how they have to be exactly right, how we have to build an arc exactly to the measurements, how we have to create the Tower of Babel, which blows my mind still, because that's the last thing I think people should be creating. If you read the story, apparently you didn't. But if we have to build it to the exact measurements, if we're trying to replicate the facts and details of the Bible to create the this accurate history, we're missing the point. So believing in Jonah and the whale is beautiful and falling into that story and letting your mind wander and what that felt like is what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to say this is an actual fact and we have to figure out exactly how the person got inside the whale and they got out of the whale without, you know, with living. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're, suspo- we're supposed to suspend our belief at times just to find the deeper meaning of scripture. And that's very, very important. I think we do it just, we, we do harm when we start picking and choosing specific facts that people have to stand behind or Mm -hmm. they're heretics or they're false teachers, because then we fall into that horrible word, cherry picking, but we fall into Forcing people to believe the unbelievable so that they can believe in God. And I don't think we should do that. I think we should allow people to suspend belief, to find the deeper meanings of the stories. I think we should allow people to experience different things in the Bible, how they come at different ages and different times. And let them let the scriptures open up to them instead of force feeding them a single story. One of the craziest things that I have learned, though, in this deconstructing world and church trauma and all of this that we're swirling in um, is that there is a group of people in this world who have come up in this specific faith space where they believe that the King James version of the Bible is the version written by God. It's the version (laughs) that Paul carried. I have no idea where that comes from. I am not kidding. It is true. They believe that this is the version that Paul carried around and used. And that blows my mind. And they will argue and call out everybody who crosses their path as Satanists and heretics and stuff because they cling to this one version that they really don't even understand. And that allows them to cast judgment on others because they hold that is God's inerrant word. That blows my mind. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like Jesus had the King James Bible. I've actually heard that. Um, so I think that it comes from, and so, I mean, you can take this for what it's worth. But the King James Version, if you look at it, it says the authorized version. Mm-hmm. And um, some, I think, have taken that as authorized by God um, as opposed to authorized by King James. 
Um, and so King James authorized this version, which King James was a king of England, um, not a king of any ancient mm-hmm. Hebrew or or other group. Um, so, no, this is not some authorized version by God. It's an authorized version by some man um, who just had a translation made. So, that I digress on that. Um, one of my favorite uh, professors in seminary, um, uh, a Jewish rabbi, and her uh, her comment was um, for for Jewish people, and I think I've said this before, um, was is not is is the story true, but is there truth in the story, and what is the truth in the story? Um, so what is this story saying to me, and what is it teaching me? And I think that that's important. That is um, always the most important thing that we're going to take away from any of the scripture, um, any translation, um, any way that we are reading this. What is what is the takeaway that I'm supposed to be getting in this? And I think that there's also the portion of that that is what am I supposed to be taking away from this in my personal life? What as pastors, what am I supposed to be taking away from this that I'm sharing and imparting to others? But also, how is God speaking to me through this? And I think that we get too caught up in this idea of, is this really what happened? Uh, is this historically um, accurate? And when we get caught up in the um, proof, the trying to prove, and I spent a great deal of my high school years in the idea that... Um, you know, creationism, uh, I probably said that wrong, but what creationism, um, that creation, it, God created the earth in seven days. This is exactly how this happened. There is no evolution. There, is, you know, And being heavily involved and reading and studying in an attempt to prove that this is true. And when you get so caught up in trying to prove that something happened and it happened the way that it was described in this text, you really are missing the boat, which is, what am I supposed to take away from this story? And what is God saying to me in this story? And how am I supposed to take that information and impart it to others? How, am, how is this in, in, um, enriching our relationship with God. How is it creating fruit? Mm-hmm. One of the beautiful parts that drew me to the Methodist faith was this fancy term called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which basically means Wesley's four ways, the method that Wesley calls us and we call ourselves to read the Bible. And they start with actually reading the scripture, reading the actual words from whatever version, understand, then diving into the context and understanding the time, the place, who wrote it, all of that. And then how that played out in the traditions through the Bible and the early church and us. And then layering on top of that our own experience. How does it speak to me? When it was broken down for the first time in this little church in Swansboro for me that way, I went, whoa. I was like, that is how I was taught by my Baptist pastor father to read the Bible. You know, that that makes sense. I understand that and I can cling and hold on to that because that's how I understand the Bible. And one of my, um, pro one of my 
interesting things has happened as I have, and I am a total Bible nerd, as I have been exploring the ways the Bible has been translated and, and the early language to now, one of the things that caught me, that made me realize that the Bible was not written by God himself. When we had hundreds of years ago, missionaries going out into these places that were not and, and doing the horrible work of colonization, um, they were trying to write, learn people's languages and write the Bible in that language so that they could preach to them and tell them what God wanted. And they came into a stumbling block because the Bible uses the word heart over and over again. Love God with all your heart and all your mind. We have all of these verses throughout our scriptures talking about how you need to give your heart to Jesus. Well, these particular groups across our planet did not understand that because they thought that all emotion came from their stomach. And I understand that. Like you get butterflies in your stomach when you see someone you love, when you get this hunger in you, when you're driven to do something from your stomach region. So they had no idea about the heart. They didn't even see the heart as anything but something that pumped blood, but they saw their stomach as everything. And so these missionaries had to take every place where heart was in the Bible and turn it into stomach. So these people could understand they need to love God with all of their stomach. And I said... You know, if, if God was doing this original, I think he would have made it something that everyone could understand. Like it, it blew my mind that, that there was so much difference in understanding of traditions and language and the way that we just describe emotion that it couldn't reach the furthest corners of the earth because the language didn't work. And so they had to actually change the language in so many places so that people could understand what they were saying. That that kind of takes the inerrancy, the God writing down this word for word out of it, because I think God would have said, parentheses, stomach, heart, mind, instead of using those terms that were integral to the people where the traditions come from. So for me, one of the things that, that really pushed home for me that inerrancy was just kind of BS um is is this whole canonization and how do things how did things end up in the canon in the the book that we call the bible and what got left out so what are all these books that are hanging out there that yeah who who didn't get picked to be put in and then there are different different books that are in different versions so, you know, there's, there's the, the Catholic version that has different books than we have. There's so many, so many, there are all of these different layers of this. And I get that as Protestants and growing up in a fundamentalist tradition, so whatever Catholics did has nothing to do with Christianity. Um, and I know people who even believe that Catholics are not even Christian. Um, but when you start to study the history and you look at church history, you look at, at the history of Christianity. Well, guess what? Catholics come way before Protestants. Mm-hmm. And that um, we come out of. And I get that it is uh, in in some places, especially if you grew up in a Calvinistic kind of idea, that we are trying to get back to the early church as opposed to all of the things that were handed down um, through the Catholic church. 
And so that particular brand of, of Christianity in, in a lot of ways were like, oh, we don't need all of this tradition. We just need to go back to the early church and what they were doing, and that's all we need to do. And so when you start looking at that church history and you look at the canonization and how stuff ends up in and how stuff ends up out, and you really read about the people who were doing this, who are not necessarily good people, y'all, mm-hmm. um, all of the sudden you're like, mm, what, what made this the word of God? And what made us possibly think that, that this is perfected in any way? So when we look at the canonization, I mean, first of all, there are fist fights over yep. this. I mean, the early church fathers literally got into brawls yep. about it and got so angry that people were sent to islands to live for the rest of their life mm-hmm. because they could not agree. These are people deciding the best way to encapsulate a story so that everyone could understand. Mm-hmm. And they were people with not a global mentality, not an understanding. They didn't have Google. (laughs) They didn't have, you know, the ability to travel to other places. So uh, you're starting off with a small select group of people deciding what goes into the Bible. And then it doesn't end because as things change, like Martin Luther comes along, he wanted to kick out the book of James. And so he got in these big fights because he didn't want James in there. It's in there, but he didn't want it in there. And The idea that it even now, depending on what new denominations come out, what new faith practices, it can change now. I mean, some of the practices out there, like the Latter-day Saints, have changed and added to the canon. Mm -hmm. So it's not a fixed thing across Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Protestants. We don't have a fixed version or fixed idea. And then... The different versions we have are so intertwined. Like when the King James Version came along, we didn't have the early scripts that we found much later after King James died. So it was written, and this is what's funny because most of the denominations that follow it don't believe Catholics or Christians, but the King James Bible was written based on the Catholic Latin Vulgate. Mm -hmm. So King James wrote the Bible based on the Catholic Bible. That always confuses me too, (laughs) (laughs) because then they deny that Catholics exist, although they get their scriptures from them. It, It blows my mind, the mental gymnastics. But we have to remember that all that is inside of whatever canon we use, whatever books and letters we use, come from actual people. And they're a select part, kind of pushed together and mushed together to give us a general picture, not to give us details. Like the fact that Paul's letters are actually a bunch of his letters mushed together. And some of them aren't even written by Paul. They're written by people who wanted to be like Paul. And when you start opening it up and realizing the source of the material, if you have, if you are stuck in this inerrancy, it's so hard for you to accept the beauty of the scriptures. And it's so hard for you to find what we are supposed to find, like you were saying, the overarching story. Um, I, I think that we spend too much time arguing about details in everything in life. That we miss the big picture, which is encapsulated in one little section that Jesus said. He said, love God with all your heart or stomach, depending on where you are, (laughs) and all your mind, and love others as you want to love yourself. We seem to, although that should be like maybe the beginning thesis of our scriptures, and then the ending kick 
of our scriptures, we seem to just kind of mesh it in with exactly what Paul told us to do or what the early Israelites did in their culture. We mix it all together and make it all so critical instead of looking at the big part. And I think that's where inerrancy fails us. So I'm going to go back to your saying that uh, the mental gymnastics that it takes to to um, to th- not think of Catholicism as Christian, um, but to get your scripture from um, a Catholic base. And I think it's less of mental gymnastics that that takes and more of a lack of understanding of church history and a lack of understanding of how things came about. And um, the more I study how things came about, I mean, um, take a class in in, um, Methodist history. Mm -hmm. The walk that the Methodist church has gone through just in really relatively recent history. I mean, the Methodist church is a relatively recent denomination. We're not talking about that long ago in a um, continuum of time. Um, so, I mean, we're not talking thousands of years. We're talking hundreds of years. And um, and a, a history that very much like U.S. history. Um, so sometimes we think that the United States has always been here and this is kind of who we are. And we don't want to really know that history. And I think there's a big push in our society right now to not know that, to, to be willfully ignorant. Mm-hmm. Ignorant. I just can't say that word today. Yeah. But to, to willfully choose to not know. And it's an important thing to recognize that um, just because we willfully choose not to know doesn't change how we got there. Um, when it comes to U.S. history, when it comes to church history, when it comes to um, the Bible. When, so just because you choose to stick your head in the sand and say, ah, la, 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 I don't want to know, doesn't change factually how you get there. Okay, I'm going to do a disclaimer. If you have children that love Santa Claus, maybe you want to turn this off and listen to it later. Um, one of the things that I find is that I, a big comparison between Santa Claus. Mm. I remember as a kid, I believed with all my heart in Santa Claus, and it was it was everything that I looked forward to. And um, I did actually, sorry, Brandy, I did punch one of my friends on the bus because she tried to tell my brother that Santa Claus didn't exist. <gasps> I was that defined and strong about it. Like, I, this is, mm, mm. no, Santa Claus is real. I know. I've seen it happen. And then after that incident, my, my parents had to explain to me some things. <laughs> and I think the hardest part of that period where you go from this childlike wonder and the magic of it all is to realizing that you have to step up and be the magic. Like, mm. I have to step up and be Santa Claus now. I have to take responsibility and be part of this process. I think that's what happens with Christians. Wait. but are you saying Santa's not real? No, Santa is very real, okay. right? Yeah, okay. and, and I'm going to be very good this year. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think part for Christians is if you can stay in that early Santa Claus idea of God, that I can pray to him and he'll fulfill my wish list. Mm. That, that the story I have been told about the North Pole and the elves and everything, if the story I've been told about the Bible is exact factual and I can suspend disbelief long enough to cling to Santa Claus God, mm. then I'm not responsible for being 
Jesus in this world. I'm not responsible for taking care of the suffering of others, for wrestling with good and evil and what it is and what it isn't. I can simply stand here and cast judgment with my naughty list and believe in the magic. And it's a very safe and comfortable place to be, I'm sure. I mean, it's it's a wonderful place to be where all I have to do is pray and God will give me the car that I want or the job that I want. And if someone's hurting, I'll just pray for them because it takes me out of the picture. But that's not healthy. That's not faith. Ha- suspending disbelief so you can believe in this magical thing that'll give you what you want is not faith. Faith is seeing the truth that the people who wrote the scriptures walk through their struggles, their, where they fell and where they lifted themselves up. That is what faith is. And to be able to have faith in God, have that hope that one day we're all going to be in this place where it is so much better if we work together and we accept the inadequacies of our life. That is what faith is. And so I, uh, that's why I say I sympathize and understand with the people sitting in the pews. I have a problem with the pastors in the pulpits. And I have a problem with pastors who have not taken the time, whether it's attending college and seminary, which I kind of think is important, but taking the time to learn and read about the history of our scriptures and our faith and then stand in a pulpit and tell people stuff. That's who I wrestle with Mm. having grace. I have complete grace for the people who grew up in those pews because I wanted to believe in Santa Claus as long as I could too. I think that that, um, we all in some way want to believe in a prosperity gospel mm-hmm. um, that in some way um, God is going to bless us in, and all we have to do is ask and God's going to give it to us whatever it is and I, I do believe that that is true I truly do God is going to give us all that we need yeah <laughs> Um, and if we ask, God is going to give us all that we need. Um, does that mean that I'm going to be driving a Ferrari tomorrow? No, it doesn't. Because God's like, you know, you got a car. You got a car that gets you where you got to go. Or you know what? You can figure out. You have the means to figure this out. To make whatever happened happen that you need to do. So I do think that God provides for us in all of our needs. I think that God provides for us in all of the things that, um, again, need is the key word in this. And so this prosperity gospel that tells us that God's just going to give us everything. Um, Ask for it and God will give it to you. Well, yes, that is true. What you need. Um, Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need today. Not give us what we need next week. Not give us what we need in the future. And so that's kind of that Santa Claus God that um, I'm going to ask God for a new bike. And just like I asked Santa Claus for a new bike. And then I'm going to be disappointed on Christmas morning when it's not there. Um, Because God didn't give me a new bike. Because you didn't believe enough. Because I didn't believe enough. Or because I didn't have faith enough. Or whatever. And so... And that takes me then into this idea that, you know, um, 
and it's a, a thing that I hear, especially um, among some of my very conservative friends, you know, how are you? I'm blessed. I'm so blessed. And I'm like, okay, tell, say more about that. You know, like, what does that mean that you're blessed? Well, God gave me this and God gave me that. And, and you know, I got a new car. I'm so blessed. Well, you know, God didn't bless you with that new car. I get that you have a new car and I get that you're excited about it. And that's wonderful. But the person who didn't get a new car is equally as blessed by God. And they're equally as loved by God as you are. It, again, mental gymnastics. Yep. I don't understand how people who, like the Joel Osteens who have the planes and mm-hmm. teach the prosperity gospel, believe in an errant gospel, and then turn around and actually read the gospel, which says, give up all you need to get into heaven. Mm-hmm. Give up all of those earthly pleasures. The gospel where... Not anyone, not Paul, not Job, not Esther, nobody in the Bible was given a new Mercedes. Jesus was given a cross, not a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. So I I don't... He even under- stole a donkey. Yeah, he had to steal a donkey. He had to borrow it. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but, borrow. Yeah, and he sent his disciples to do that. <laughs> he couldn't even like snap his fingers. <laughs> but I, I think that's why I, I say that Inerrancy doesn't come from a holy, faith-filled place. It comes from a pride place, a need for quick fixes place, almost an addiction type place where Mm -hmm. where you just want a quick fix to make you feel good. So I'm going to read the scripture. It makes me feel good. God said it to me personally, and I'm going to ignore all the scriptures that don't make me feel good. And, and if I need something in my life, a new job, I need someone to be healed. I'm going to ignore the fact that there are other people who need to be healed. I'm going to say, God's going to do this for me. I have this hat that says blessed because I have a big problem with that word. And someone gave me a hat and it is torn and shabby. I got it. It was all torn up and shabby. It's the ugliest looking hat in the world. In the middle of it, it says blessed. And I love that hat because for me, being blessed means Knowing God in the midst of the big chaotic mess that my life is. Being blessed doesn't mean I have a fancy hat. It means that everything I have is shabby and worn and sad looking. But in the middle of it all, I have hope and faith and all of that stuff doesn't matter. And I hope, I hope that we can move towards the blessings of what we do have and not the blessings of the material world that we see because I did not read that anywhere in the Bible that I was forced by teachers to read over and over again and sometimes read for myself yeah so um I think that um it's easy to want a lazy Mm -hmm. um religion to want a lazy faith um a faith that um, gives you easy answers that um, draws you into this place of believing that all you have to do is ask and Santa Claus God shows up with it. Um, and um, to me, that is a, a lazy uh, way of viewing your faith and viewing your walk with God. And uh, I don't think that we're called into um, lazy discipleship. I don't think we're called into uh, lazy faith. We are called into um, a difficult place. And um, we are called into a relationship with God that 
um, that isn't always comfortable. It isn't always, um, um, here's an easy answer. Most of the time, the answers are difficult. The answers are, are hard to, um, to wrap your head around. And, um, and I think that is the allure of fundamentalism. The allure of fundamentalism is easy answers. And, um, and rarely are those available to us. We don't get easy answers. We get hard answers. We get hard fault answers um, that um, draw us into um, difficult places um, to do difficult things. I think one of the big things that we focus on is discernment. Mm. When, when whether it's a call to be a pastor or whether it's a call to be a minister, because in the Methodist church, we're all ministers, a call into some ministry, whether it's a, like from being an altar child who lights the candles to being the one who runs a massive program of outreach, we expect discernment in our faith. And discernment is that time we spent really wrestling with ourselves, wrestling with scripture, trying to figure out what we are supposed to do for God, what God wants from us. And I think that create that is dependent on an inspired and not inerrant word of God. I think to be able to truly discern and grow in sanctification and, and to move towards God causes us to have to let go of the absolutes and live in the place of discernment constantly. And it's if you are a black and white thinker, well, actually, I'm going to take that back. I think because I've had some children that have that very clear cut thinking and it was easier for them to understand historical context than it was inerrancy. Mm-hmm. So I think whatever kind of thinker you are, you have to discern everything in your faith. That's, that's what helps us grow in grace and faith. And the saddest part for me is when people are spending their money and their time in church spaces where they're not allowed discernment. They're not allowed to wrestle with God, to ask questions of the pastor. I, there's not growth and it, and it breaks my heart. I I would hope that whoever walks through my doors feels okay with challenging me on things I say about the scripture, feels okay with challenging and questioning themselves because one, they're not going to grow. But also if I am not constantly discerning with others what things mean, I am never going to grow. I'm going to be in the stilted narcissistic place where I just reside in not being connected to God, just being earthly. And I want to not be in that space. And so my hope is that as churches, and I think we have a reformation happening right now, I truly believe with everything that's happening in the world, we have a reformation. I hope that as this reformation progresses, more and more people find spiritual spaces where they're allowed to grow, think, and challenge everything, even our scriptures. I want to say one thing. The word of God is not our scripture. The word of God, as stated in the Bible, is Jesus. Our scripture just tells us about Jesus and all the other people. 
And if someone tells you differently, you have every right to question that. We've come to the end of our time. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Bam, there you go. <laughs> so um, so I, I'm going to um, challenge you this week um, mm-hmm. to, um, to look at uh, where you are, at what you're reading, who you're listening to, um, to how your faith is uh, progressing, and um, to look at your reason, your tradition, your understanding um, in your life. And as you're doing that, to think about how this is, is your relationship with God and how this, um, whatever you're being taught, wherever that is, how that is at work in you. Um, and don't be afraid to do, um, do the hard questions and the hard research to find the answers. Don't have a blessed week, but have a grace filled week. (laughs) We'll see you next week. See you next week.